Hi, my name's Brad Fordham. I'm a bass player, and you're listening to Talking Blues. I would presume that you consider yourself a country music bass player, or is that incorrect? I just, I would say a bassist in general. I've, I've play a lot of other styles other than country, but I've, I've been fortunate enough to make quite a, a decent name for myself playing country, but um, I just like playing everything, anything that comes along. So was that, was that always the case? Like if I was to ask you which came first, the bass or your love of country music, would it be the bass first? Um... You know, a little bit of both. I had a little acoustic guitar when I was a kid, and I could play country songs. I loved folk songs. I loved Gordon Lightfoot, you know, and uh, as we all do from up around there. And <laughs> uh, But I had a... I seemed to have an affinity for the bass. Like, even when my little guitar strings would break on my first little gut string guitar, the strings I liked better were the bottom ones. <laughs> it's like, those are the ones that sound cool. <laughs> and you sound like Willie Nelson. Um, but, um, yeah, it all it all kind of meshed together. And once I started playing music with other people, it always seems like there's, there's a, a shortage of bass players and anybody wants to play bass. And I just fell into it and I guess people liked it <laughs> how old were you when you started playing the guitar and how old were you when you started playing the bass well that's actually a tough question <laughs> I you know I I was probably I was already playing in bands before I was in high school you know I was already and always trying to play with older guy, older older guys and gals because I'd always learned something so I was already playing in bands by the time I was in like the uh the eighth grade, you know. <laughs> I was playing I was playing downtown before I should have been, but <laughs> I think the age was twenty one then. Is it still in Ontario? <laughs> that I'm not no, sure it's nineteen. Yes, yeah. I think. I remember be Oh no, no, you're right, right, you're right, you're right. I remember being devastated because when I turned 18, they put the age up to 19 because <laughs> I, I was always sneaking into clubs and playing. What kind of music were you playing at that time? I was playing rock and roll or blues or anything. When I started playing downtown, you know, Toronto's always had such a great uh, blues scene. And I was I was learning from a lot of older guys, guys like, and, and there were so many talented older guys in Toronto that I could play with. Like, I remember... Uh, playing with, you know, playing with Johnny Ludson, rest his soul. I hear he passed away up there, but you know, there's a guy that could play blues at Albert Hall, but then I'd wind up playing from, you know, dust till dawn at the Matador playing country songs with him, you mm. know? And, and I said, that's an education. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, I love playing at Albert Hall and, uh, it all just seemed like, you know, I remember for the longest time playing playing the Sunday Blues Jam at Grossman's Tavern, which was so much fun because you never knew who you were going to play with, you know. <laughs> Can you share with us some of the people you did play with 
at those jams? At Grossman's? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, geez, I can't even remember. I was in this great R&B band with my best, uh, with one of my still oldest and best friends, Lee Warren, and and uh, we had this R&B soul band that I got to play with, with a fellow named James Doolin. Was James Doolin and the Jaguars, because he was the also the ace British sports car mechanic in town. But it was he was fantastic, the sax player and singer, and just nuts crawling all over the place. But we had <laughs> so much fun at just play at Albert's Hall a lot. And but those Sunday jams at Grossman's, they're kind of like a blur because sometimes I'd be up there playing bass and then Terry Wilkins would show up and you know, <laughs> and, and the, the you know, revolving door, but right. It was always so much fun. And that might have been after running from across the road and playing at the Elma Combo, you know. I just wanted to play wherever I could. <laughs> at what point did you think that music was going to be your career? Oh, I was probably, I was pretty much angling on it by the time, by the time I was getting ready to finish high school, you know, and, uh, as a matter of fact, it's uh, another devastation and setback to my career. I remember when all the high school still then still had live music bands. Yeah. And I'd met all these bands. I mean, we had, I mean, God, I, I went to Wexford when I was a kid. We had Rush and Triumph playing at our high school dances. And even then I knew that these guys were going downtown and playing the gas works on yeah. Youngster or something after knocking out a high school dance it's like that's a pretty good that's a pretty good go <laughs> and then man right around when i was in high school they started outlawing live music bands in high school auditoriums because we were i think mostly because they were bringing in pyro and burning up the gymnasium <laughs> floor and but that was it and it became all djs after that and i was like oh so i just got downtown as quick as i could um you know it seems like there was all these obstacles thrown at your way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was the 80s. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I got downtown as quick as I could. And luckily through my my uh, my friend Lee, I, I actually got myself a little day job at Steve's Music Store on Queen Street. And I was playing every night as much as I could. And playing during the day. <laughs> when does the country music part come in? Well, a lot. I loved playing at the Matador, and uh, and Russell DeCarl and Prairie Oyster were a huge influence on me because Russell was a bass player and the lead singer. And uh, at that time, country and blues and all the roots music were kind of blending together like we were all playing at the horseshoe and then um you know when i was writing songs it felt like that i was always they always had kind of a country bent to it and i didn't even realize it and then uh somewhere around the mid 80s i had a really fun band with my friend Lori yates and lee and we had a bit of a splash as little band called Rang Tango, and we were playing country, but we were playing what 
the game country, but it also, it had blues in there, rock and roll thrown in there, rock, um, tons of rockabilly thrown in there, Janice Martin, uh, Wanda Jackson. But we were playing the country bars as well, and we're ostensibly a country band. But it was a great time there in the mid-80s, because like I said, um, you know, Prairie Oyster was playing, and they, they weren't a straight-up country band, they could just as easily play, you know, the Elma Combo and the Horseshoe, and Blue Rodeo had just started up, and everybody was, it was all mashing together, and it was, it was great, it was a great mix-up. If I was to ask you, did you have goals back then? Yeah, I, I really did. I was, I was pretty determined, like, uh, um, I really wanted to make records, and I still do. I love, I love making records. I, lo I love studio work, and um, I mean, even that uh, that little thing with Lori within within a year that that they went from playing for you know nobody at the Pine Tree Tavern on Queen Street, which I'm sure is long gone, to we were selling out venues, and uh, I had a lot of energy then. <laughs> <laughs> But when you said recording, did you want to become a studio musician or was it just, I want to work with bands who are recording? Yeah, well, either and both. I yeah. love being in the studio. I love, I love creating, but I also like playing. I, I like, I like playing a lot live. I like a lot of energy, but um, I love being in the studio. So when I, when I look at your discography from, from the latter part of the, 80s to the mid part of the the 20 teens like you were a very busy guy <laughs> yeah <laughs> like if i'm not mistaken you have like 50 albums or more to your credit that you've worked on yeah and it was all fun i mean i went all in with the country thing so many of my friends moved to nashville including some of my old bandmates and nashville was just still I mean, there really was only three major recording centers in the U.S. It was either New York or L.A. or Nashville. And Nashville's kind of the, you know, was really, you know, becoming the place for not just country, for even, for, you know, more modern blues and stuff like that. The studios were just so good. So, um, yeah, it was just like, but I was pretty much all in on the country thing. So I, was, I, I wound up getting... Uh, brought down here um, to play with a great gal named Kelly Willis, and she got um, assigned to MCA Records, and that kind of started the the whole journey down here because, like I said, so many of my friends were moving to Nashville. Colin Linden, everybody were, um, and my friend Lee had moved there to work with Michelle Wright, who was then facing out of Nashville, and um, but yeah, I was. 24 maybe 25 years old and Nashville still then just it wasn't it wasn't fun <laughs> it was more like an older people's town and the music <laughs> scene there was very nine to five and I kept going to Austin which is about another day's drive Nashville's about halfway and then it was like then I found my home it's like people my age were playing the kind of music I liked and it had incredible amounts of energy and uh it uh yeah it just became 
that's how I one of the reasons how I got based out of Austin and when I got brought down there to work with Kelly Willis's band yeah they they needed kind of a younger band because unbelievably uh, Kelly was 19 years old when she got signed to MCA Records so they wanted <laughs> everybody to decide she kind of needed to have a younger band <laughs> and that was a pretty big deal right I mean it was MCA it was a major label and yeah Tony Brown signed her and 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 strangely enough on on the advice of a lot of people it, uh, it was it was so sweet it, it's hard to believe that uh remember Nancy Griffith making a phone call to Tony Brown going, you need to see this girl. We were playing at the Continental Club in Austin, and it was uh, it was all right around when South by Southwest was was very small, and uh, those dreams could come true at South by Southwest. There was literally, uh, they were doing a showcase, you know, with Kelly, and barely people, it was so long ago, people still barely had cell phones. It was people... You know, you could see Ann Arpels heading for the payphones. You know, but but it's hardly that was that was it was so sad when we heard of Nancy's passing because it was like she was part of the Austin crew. She was like one of the, you know, one of the people so instrumental in 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 so many of our careers here. Wow. Um. So how long did you last in Nashville, or did you last at all in Nashville? I never really lived there, and so many people thought I did because. I worked there a lot. Even people in Austin thought I lived in Nashville because <laughs> I was always either on the road or, uh, you know, we'd be recording in Nashville. I I never really felt as comfortable in Nashville. It always felt like a great place to, uh, you know, I never like calling it work, but it's it's work. Yeah. <laughs> I know you were recently back in Ontario, I believe, not too long ago. Yeah. But- um, how yeah. difficult was it to leave Canada, or was it difficult at all? Uh, it it was it was hard to leave the I you know, it was it was hard to leave my family and stuff and a lot of friends. But I felt like I'd done everything I could do there, and uh, I didn't even leave because of the weather. I like <laughs> the snow. <laughs> I can still ski <laughs> a little bit, and the knees are getting. <laughs> I might be having to go play a music festival in Steamboat Springs in uh, in January, which is a great festival. And I'm like, oh, should I ski? I'm not sure. I still can. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it wasn't even the weather that drove me out of Canada. It was just like a chance to. It was just a a chance to play the music that I loved with people that I really liked. Did you do much work out west in Canada? Like, did you do the cross country stuff? You know, I didn't as much, and I always felt like that. If I was going to stay in Canada, I'd probably go west because so many of my friends wound up out there. So many of my friends and mentors like Kit Johnson and everybody went west. And I really liked it out there. You know, I liked uh, playing the festivals out there. And, of course, Holger Peterson was out there. And I always thought I'd probably go west. And I guess I did. I, I just went southwest instead of west <laughs> so you, you you spoke about this a little bit but tell me about that scene in austin when you got down there like we're talking 1991 nine, early yeah 8990 it it's it it's hard for me to believe now but i brought in the 90s playing a double bill with kelly willis and a band called the wagoneers who uh 
who were just doing great then they were they were selling more records in uh, in Canada than they were in the states they were signed to A&M Records and we brought in the 90s in Austin I played New Year's Eve 89 to 90 and it's like wow I brought in the 90s <laughs> in Austin Texas that was a long time <laughs> goes by fast <laughs> so right off the top you're working with Kelly Willis and things are happening and obviously the Wagoneers were also a happening band were they not mm-hmm. um, were they not nominated like the best roots rock band or something in Austin oh yeah I believe they were I think even in I remember Rolling Stone magazine uh, giving them all kinds of nods like if the Clash were playing <laughs> it's this something like that it's like uh, yeah it was it was a great time and of course the blue band by is still at that time Stevie was still with us and the T-Birds were just kicking so there was a lot of stuff going down here and like I said in Austin you can play blues you could play blues one night play country the next or play it all in the same night in the same group so it was just like the, the musical melting pot is still incredible here you know <laughs> so how easy is it i mean obviously being signed to a label and being associated with a, uh, two two decent bands at that time would would help greatly but how easy is it for you to establish yourself as a player in austin well um like i said i i consider myself very fortunate because i was kind of imported because at the <laughs> time there was a bass player you know, shortage. I remember uh, running into Doug Somm at the Edmonton Folk Festival, and he was always just so nice. You know, <laughs> and he's going, "You should, you should move to Austin." He goes, "There's, there's no, there's no bass players, not enough bass players." And then, you know, strangely enough, it wound up happening. Like I basically got imported to Austin to play with Kelly. You know, <laughs> so it happened. <laughs> and but, uh, but your talent has something to do with this. <laughs> but it's just so it was just so so perfect because doug was such an idol of all ours you know and there and he'd spend all his summers in canada the formerly brothers you know were huge up there i think there was at least one juno and doug was another one of those guys it's like wait he can play country he was a child prodigy steel player but play the blues one of my favorite records to him was a flat-out full-on soul band with horns you know and it's like he could do everything <laughs> and it was like that's what i like you can never get you could never get bored playing music with somebody like that because it's just covering every genre you know <laughs> and i don't know if that worked against him because i don't know if he gets the recognition that he probably deserves i mean he's written some amazing songs uh yeah uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're right though. I don't know. He sure does amongst our, our, you know, <laughs> our, our world. How did you, quickly did you think you were accepted into the Austin music scene? It was, it was really kind of wonderful. It's like I already found like, you know, like I'd found a musical family and, uh, and yeah, everybody was so nice to me when I moved down there, opera me gear you know, to play with if I didn't have a certain amp for this. It was, it was really kind of wonderful. And I remember even uh, one of my old bandmates telling me, he was like, 
you, know, you should move to Austin. She goes, she goes, everybody's, everybody looks like you. And I was like, what? <laughs> so maybe it was meant to be. Did, know, did but, it turn uh, out to be true? Did you look around yeah, in the city? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's kind of funny, but it was, it was, I was incredibly, uh, accepted and that was, it was, it was pretty mind blowing. <laughs> okay. So how, how does the guy from Scarborough who says, I want to do a lot of recording wind up getting the chance to do a lot of recording? Well, doing that, getting to do that studio work in Nashville, um, was the best boot camp training you can ever have. Because in Nashville, we don't mess around. If you don't get on the first pass, they'll bring in somebody who will. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, and it it was great. Tony Brown was so so great to us, uh, uh, letting us play on Kelly's records. And we were all still pretty young, and, and some of us had already had studio experience, but... Man, just being able to have that kind of experience under your belt. And then um, by the time we started making a lot of records in Nashville, we'd already had, or in Austin, we'd already had so much Nashville studio experience that it was like, we could really, we could really knock them out in Austin. (laughs) (laughs) But how do you learn that? How do you... How do you learn? So just to clarify, you initially did some work in Nashville. You still lived in Austin. You kept going back to Nashville to do some recording sessions? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So now you're looking yeah. around and seeing that you're, you're dealing with top-notch musicians and you got to be on top of your game. Yeah. yeah. And so is that like what, what would have been the greatest lesson from that? Like when you first started working in the studio, what did you observe? What did you decide that you needed to do? Oh, just be able to have huge ears and be able to create, yet create really quickly. Like I'd already had studio experience in Toronto, but it wasn't like, there's there's a pressure in Nashville. It's pressure. It's a good kind of pressure because it's still creative, but you know it's there. And it's like, if you, if you can do that, you can kind of do, do anything. <laughs> okay. How, do you, how does one do that, though? Uh, yeah, well, you do it, or they get somebody else who will. <laughs> was, was there ever a time that you lost out on an opportunity, or that you they got somebody else? Uh, no, no, luckily not. <laughs> wow. But um, but I got to play with a, a lot of other great players, so um, I guess I made the I made the cut, and uh, and. Like I said, um, we loved recording in Nashville, but it always was very, uh, uh, like I said, more of a pressure situation. And then when we started getting to make our own records in Nashville or in Austin, it was like, well, I still, I was able to still apply some of that discipline that I'd learned in Nashville. But you mix that with the creativity of the more laid back Austin. It's like, oh, then you really, then it's the best of both worlds. <laughs> <laughs> but now, you know, having said that, Nashville is just so different now that you, there's so, like now that a lot more of the 
the younger rock and roll guys moved there, like with Jack White living there. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a whole, it's a whole different city. And that was a long time ago, but it, it's, it's stuff I'll never forget. Like getting to work with Tony Brown as a producer, because by that time he was, he was a god. He'd already, we'd all, I'd already done shows like opening for Steve Earle and stuff in Toronto. And, and, you know, folks like that. And, you know, and Nancy Griffith, and we knew he made all those records, and it was like, wow, <laughs> getting to do that. <laughs> you did some producing as well, did you not? Yeah, you know, yeah, do a bit. We get to do a little bit of everything here in Austin. Mm. <laughs> okay, so how has Austin changed in the time that you've been there? There's a lot more people. <laughs> yeah, it's grown. It's grown incredibly, and uh, there's still a lot of venues. But it's it's just grown a whole lot, and there's a lot of musicians here, and then, and that's great, because um, everybody gets to play. But um, are there more the bass only... players? No, oh, yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> and they're all and they're all great. They're all great. I learn so much from anybody. You know, that's I love watching the young guys play because I'm always watching and listening and it it's just so funny the only thing i miss is that the the town's become so big now that uh like even up through most of the 90s here there was a a camaraderie between the blues guys the country guys the rock and roll guys yes, it was such a small town that everybody really blended together because there's only so many places to play and now it's become such a big city that a lot more of the genres tend to get uh, localized we like kind of stick together and uh but you, that's bound to happen because i've never seen that happen to that level where like you know we'd be there was a great band at the time i moved to austin and they were up heavy metal band called Dangerous Toys. Not that heavy, not like, uh, 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 you know, more like just heavy rock, like in the right. Van Halen genre. But they were young guys and they were our age and they got a huge LA record deal and they did pretty good. But we'd all be comparing notes because, you know, we're recording uh, ostensibly country with some rock and roll over in Nashville with Tony Brown and they're working out in LA recording big time rock and uh and then of course and then right in the middle of all that you've got all the incredible blues gang here in austin but we all hung out together it was it was funny it was great <laughs> <laughs> there's a man that i would admire and respect greatly uh named mel brown mm, who yeah. used to be um at antone's yeah, and I don't know if you ever saw him while he was the the man, band leader or whatever. Dallas no, band. I I never got to, to see Mel. Oh. Sadly, sadly, a lot of my time in Austin too was on, on tour so much oh, that's right. okay. that sometimes I wouldn't get to see a lot of what went on in Austin. I think that's why everybody thought I always lived in Nashville because sometimes <laughs> I'd be gone for a month at a time. And like I said, I was so excited just to be able to play. I would literally jump from one tour bus the other i'd be out with kelly come home go out 
with the Wagoneers, and I think by that that point I was touring some with Jimmy Dale Gilmore, and I'd, I'd literally, I think there was actually one year where I didn't really have an address. <laughs> I'd just jump from one tour to the other, because I just loved it so much. I still love it. I still love traveling. That's why the pandemic was kind of yeah. extra hard Tough, on a lot sure. of us. <laughs> okay, so what is it about you your playing or your personality that one lends itself to being on-demand studio musician but also being asked to join so many bands on tour i think it's because i still really like performing you know and uh i really try to put a lot of uh energy into complimenting whatever artist i'm on the stage with too as opposed to just being there and playing the notes. Right. Yeah. I'd I like to try and be a part of whatever's going on on stage too. And is that an easy thing to, to do? I, for me it is. <laughs> yeah. For me, it really is. It just, it's, it's very natural. Um, because most of the time I, I, re I, I can't think of, of anything I'd rather, be doing and all the people I've gotten to play with I've really wanted to be there <laughs> so so you play with some amazing play players um yeah. Jerry Jeff Walker can you tell me a little about that experience oh yeah see there was there was another fella a real a true a true original uh like Doug Som that he could he could go into a romping blues tune and be straight up country and then just be the the folksy troubadour that he started off as in Greenwich Village. But it that was another, you know, kind of amazing um, musical education because when I first started getting to sub for Jerry Jeff, I was usually the, the young understudy for, uh, for Cosmic Bob Livingston, his longtime you know, compadre, and uh, it was just the best because uh, that education of getting thrown into the fire. I mean, I think at that point, Jerry Jeff had about 30 albums of recorded material, <laughs> and there's never a set list. I've never, I, you know, I was fortunate enough to play with him up till the, up till the very end, and there never was a a set list or a playlist a couple of times he'd think about it and he'd write down about five or six songs and you know if it was a show he was actually you know excited about <laughs> or nervous about it uh, and and then it would just get crumpled up and go by the wayside i still managed to keep a couple of them because it was kind of hilarious <laughs> because we and the rest of the band just knew it's like he's not going to do that he's going to go out i've never seen anybody who could read a crowd like that he knew when to bring him up, when to bring him down. It was like, it was like a roller coaster. Okay, so that means and you have to learn all his songs. Yeah. <laughs> and do you it, literally learn all thirty albums worth of songs? Like, I guess you can't fake this, right? Yeah, not really. And if he went into it, you just it, it was kind of like our little, uh, what we call our little red badge of courage. If you didn't, you learned it. You were you were there, like so. It was really to be in his band. You had to be kind of fast and on your fast on your feet. Wow. 
fast in the ears. And he always had, I was so fortunate because he always had, had the best, the best guitar players, you know, and, uh, and the best drummers. So it's, it was always really fun. Another person you played with, um, who you already mentioned, and I don't know how much you played with her was Wanda Jackson. Yeah. Tell yeah. me a little bit about that. Uh, she's amazing. Talk about, you know, you, it's, it's hard to believe you can play, play with a hall of famer, but, uh, man, when, when she could, when she could still belt, that's, that's some goose, goosebumps you, you can't recreate. And it was, yeah, I got to play Fujiyama with Wanda Jackson in front of Mount Fuji. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, it, it was something else, but, um, yeah, it, I, I was so fortunate too, because in, uh, uh, I've gotten to play with a lot of great female artists, you know, from Lori Yates to Kelly Willis and, and now Whitney Rose, another one of our fellow Canadians. <laughs> and uh, it's funny, we all knew Wanda Jackson's songs. So when it came my time to, to play with her, it was like, yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> well, how did so that, that happen? That was just kind of lucky because I'd played Wanda Jackson's songs with Lori. And uh, yeah, actually, the first time I played with Aunt Wanda was actually... Uh, kind of amazing i was uh i was a uh, a substitute wagoneer as uh the original bass player uh needed to move on and uh starting a family and such and uh and i was in between things it's like okay i'm up and a chance to go to japan i was just thrilled and it was a big festival and uh, also uh got to bank up uh back up hank thompson on that tour so yeah a rock and roll hall of famer and a country hall of famer wow. on one show but it was yeah that was the experience of a lifetime but wanda's just amazing and she's still going with just you know i i uh, i've only heard a little bit of the the record she's just done with joan jett but yeah she's recording with joan <laughs> jett that's that's awesome <laughs> I was a huge Runaways fan. <laughs> I think Joan Jett's the same age as me. It's like, I remember not being able to get into the El Macombo to see the Runaways. <laughs> and then my older sister did. And I was so jealous because I'm like, these are 17-year-old girls slinging Les Pauls in a Thunderbird bass. And it's like, this is unbelievable. <laughs> Could you have just as easily have gone in more into the rock direction? Yeah. Probably, <laughs> but I, I love country music so much. Like I said, and I, I think when I, I grew up, there was always just so much of it on the radio still then in Canada. And, uh, you know, there was still great AM country radio too, like coming out of Hamilton. Right. And uh, yeah, yeah, I still love rocking out. <laughs> I, I Yeah. It's yeah, to me, it's just all good music and it's good. It's good songs. Did you ever go through a rough period other than the pandemic, which would have been difficult? But as, as when you decide that you would be a musician, go to the States, hopefully work in studios and do a lot of recording. Did you ever go through a dry period? Did you ever go through a time where you might have questioned your decision to be a musician? Yeah, yeah, there was a couple 
there was, you know, one time in particular in Austin, and it's just sort of, you know, you just hit a rough patch where, uh, you know, a certain couple acts that I might be working with started slowing down. And that happened a little bit, but the greatest thing about Austin is we always have Austin, and it's still a ton of live music venues, and I never had to stop playing. So it was always there. It was just maybe kind of an adjustment. And we used to joke about Austin as, um, you know, you never get above your raisin. <laughs> and that would be true because, you know, they might be on the big tour and you're on the TV shows and stuff like that. And then you're not. But you're still running down to 6th Street to play. <laughs> it's just different. But, yeah, there were some rough patches. I remember uh, at one point, uh, and we were glad to have it, but there was a really cool kind of rock and roll diner here, and the uh, the owner and chef guy named Mick, he loved hiring musicians because he loved giving musicians a job, and they always had a place to eat if you worked there. <laughs> so, but I remember one night working in the kitchen, and yeah, this is in between tours, in between record deals, whatever. And Mick hollers out back there working in the kitchen, Austin C limits on, and Mick calls over and he goes, "Hey, Brad." And I go, "Yeah, Mick." He goes, "Is that you?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, it was. They were <laughs> playing at Austin C limits. I was on, and it's like, "Yep." One day Austin C limits. One day. Working in the kitchen, but it all worked. It all came around. But <laughs> well, you never decided to quit. You never thought I want to quit music. Nah. <clears throat> Even in that kitchen, at one point there was two or three bass players working there. We all knew each other. At one point, a call came into the kitchen of that restaurant looking for a bass player <laughs> that night. That's how crazy Austin is. <laughs> Somebody knew to call the Majestic Diner if they wanted to find a good bass player. <laughs> Is there any other city like Austin in terms of the way music is treated? What You know, that's a tough one because I've really, I spent so much of my life. It was a, it was a strange point when, it, um, when I realized I'd lived in Austin as long as I'd lived in Toronto. That was a kind of a weird and cool milestone, but they're really the only two cities I've actually lived in full-time, even though I've spent so much time, you know, spent a lot of time working in Nashville and some in Los Angeles. Um, not so much in New York, which is when I was young, where I always thought I'd wind up and it wound up just not being that way. But I really don't know in terms of if you want to go out and play, I don't think so. Yeah, just the the sheer amount of venues where you can actually go out and try out your songs, try out your chops. I don't, I don't think so. I think Austin might still have it. And that's got to be because of the audience as well. Tell me about the Austin music fans. Well, they're very accepting, but at the same time, they're, they're pretty good critics. Like, I remember we used to call it crowd testing material, and we would do it a lot. You'd always play your new song. It's kind of almost a shame that uh, that's one of those things I know everybody's a little bit more worried about now because everybody's got a cell phone. <laughs> and, um, you know, 
it's like everybody's a little more leery about doing that, throwing a song out there before it might even really be finished. But there were so many nights in Austin where I remember like, you'd want to try out new songs and just do them right there. And uh, if we're getting ready to do pre-production for a record, it's like, Austin's the, the place to do it because if they'll, because they will let you know, like they would never boo it if it wasn't good. But at the same time, uh, we were finding so much in Nashville at that time, almost all the gigs were showcases. So you'd wind up playing for a lot of people on like this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and Austin is not like that. Austin people still like to dance. <laughs> and, but still they, um, it, it, they're really good critics of good songs. And, and I really believe that's why so many great songwriters have come out of here. Too. Okay, so let's say you wrote a song, you make it, you debut it, and you don't get the reception that, that you had hoped. Yeah. Would you automatically think, there's something wrong with the song, the audience didn't like it, or would there be a possibility you might think, maybe it was the wrong crowd tonight? <laughs> maybe a little bit of both. Like, maybe maybe it would make us go back and work on that song a little bit more, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that was it. Maybe it was a, but let's try it again next week. <laughs> if, if there is a gig next week. And, and But is it easy to get gigs in Austin? I think it's still easier than anywhere else in I would have to say North America <laughs> I don't want to just say America as well as <laughs> Canada as well I still think that uh, you can find a place to play so what was it like being back in Canada I don't know how often you get back here but what was oh, it like yeah. to be back here not too long ago it was really nice it was kind of a whirl, whirlwind trip we didn't have a lot of time because we both actually had to get back for gigs. <laughs> but um, it, it always feels really good to cross the border. And um, we try to get up there. I'm trying to do the Doug Somm thing. Doug Somm was always our hero. It's like, yeah, spend the summers in Canada <laughs> and the rest of the year in Austin, Texas, where it's 100 plus degrees. And uh, But this was a really different trip because it was our first... Uh, it was Lisa and I's first post-pandemic, or well, we're still in it. Yeah, trip into Canada, and for the first time, it was it was kind of tough, different. But we didn't even go to downtown Toronto. You know, sometimes I'd immediately be down there to see Laurie Yates and Basil Donovan and and the gang playing at the Cameron House, and. Uh, Go see Teddy Fury at the Horseshoe, holding down the bar. And uh, we kind of didn't do anything. We kind of stayed because we know so much of Toronto is still, we'd already heard that so much of it was still being careful. Yeah. As they should. And uh, as Lord knows, we've had our experiences down here. Well, so what's yeah. that like to be in Austin? I, I think you played a gig last night, did you not? Mm -hmm. And it was to a pretty packed house. It's pretty packed. They all... They all want to hear live music again. But, uh, uh, masked or masked less? 
we're still trying to mask. There's still not enough masks. Yeah. But we're trying to mask up as much as we can until we get right on a sanitized microphone. And that's what was so amazing. Driving into Canada, we just, it was, it was kind of almost refreshing to see all the safeguards still in place. But we didn't even, that was the first time I'd ever not even taken one trip down to Toronto. We went straight up to see my family up in Georgia Bay. Right. Which we really wanted to do. I haven't seen them for two years. Usually there's at least always a tour or something that rolls through or near Toronto, but there hasn't been. And uh but yeah, I mean it is on down here. It is on. And uh it's 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 sometimes kinda of difficult as um I don't know if Lisa spoke to you since, but we both got sick. We got the virus and we're fully vaccinated and we try to be as careful as we can. But, um, so you, got, you got sick after the vaccination? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Yes. Which is, which yes. is, I mean, I, I know that it's, that's not that unusual. And not hopefully... anymore. At the time we were shocked, but now yeah, yeah. as we're finding it's happening a lot more and we thought we were being and tried to be so careful. And, but, and do you uh, have any idea how that would have happened? If you were being so careful, was it was it doing gigs or was it just grocery shopping? Or do you have any idea how it, you might have gotten it? It was gigs. It was shows. Yeah. Wow. Well, I got it from Lisa. That's all. <laughs> Her fault. <laughs> it was no. Sad, sadly, she did. We traced. We contact traced, and luckily, everybody is still being really good about contact tracing. And we were hoping against hope that she wouldn't get sick. And then she got sick. And we uh, we tried to isolate here. Uh, we have the luxury of having two stories. They're very small stories. <laughs> and we tried to isolate. But I got it about four days later. But uh, thankfully, we're okay. But it was it was kind of kind of scary. Had some had some pretty tricky uh, tricky symptoms. Uh, but it was so weird. We both got an uh, entirely different set of symptoms. You know, I lo I had the classic. I lost all my sense of smell and taste, and Lisa didn't. So oh. that's, it's a bizarre virus. I mean, I guess the idea is that you get vaccinated, um, the chances of getting it is less. But if you do get it, the chance of it being really severe is much less. Absolutely. And you hopefully will not have to go to the hospital. Right. Which is what we were really concerned about. And you didn't have uh, to go? Nope. Okay. I, I came pretty close. I had pneumonia in one lung, and luckily it hadn't spread to the other one. It's like, I've always, all those uh, all those cold Canadian winters, <laughs> I had bronchitis every oh. winter. And I thought that would kind of, uh, I thought I'd kind of hang that up when I moved 1,500 miles south. <laughs> no, I didn't know. I still get bronchitis at the drop of a hat every oh, really? week. And uh, it's so weird. It's like that virus is sci-fi. It's like a monster. It, they say it attacks your weakest link. And, and Lisa, when she gets our allergies and stuff down here, usually when she gets something, it's a sinus infection or something. Maybe. I never knew what a sinus infection was when I moved to Austin. <laughs> um, if, and that's what she started to feel. And mm. for me, it was right to the lungs. I started coughing. I was like, oh, I won't be singing. <laughs> and 
And uh, so it was kind of bizarre. It went right for our weak spots, you know, but thankfully we're, we're okay. So I'm how, I got my sense. How does that experience change you? It, it makes you try and even be more careful, but we're really in a quandary. People really want to hear live music and things are opening up, but you can only be so careful. And in a way, some people are telling us, you guys are going to be super, you guys are super people now, super antibodies. And I was like, well, I hope so, because I don't want to get it again. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I think that's less likely that you will get it again. And also the fact that you have hopefully. the antibodies. It's not to say it's impossible, but I think, exactly. I think they're right. I think you, you're in a good yeah. spot. We're all in the unknown, but people really want live music and we want to play and um you know i it, it it's funny when we were up north um you know a couple of weeks back yeah we were actually there the night of the central park concert oh and yeah. we actually all we actually all tuned in because for me all eyes are on new york yeah. i said if the boss is going out and playing uh and paul simon they're going to be careful. They're they're not youngsters, <laughs> and there were like all eyes were on Central Park. It's like we got to see what's going to happen here and what the fallout from this is going to be. And when you know the thing gets rained out, <laughs> <laughs> but even Lollapalooza, I mean, I I believe there yeah. was like a ridiculous amount of people, and I think they they recorded very few, like two hundred or three hundred or something from right. that, and so yeah. and that's encouraging i guess that's encouraging and yep so is there road work planned ahead we actually have some lisa and i are uh heading up to nashville at the end of the month to play an americana festival with miss whitney rose oh, so okay. that'll, that'll be fun and we're playing on uh on an outdoor stage, one of the city stages outdoors. So there we are. We're not in a crowded. Only one gig we're not in a crowded, cramped little club because done lots of those up there in Nashville. You know, it's just like South by Southwest. Some of the venues would just be the smaller clubs, and but uh, so that's encouraging because Whitney uh, had it as well. Wow. And uh, and she did really well. She just uh, felt like she had a really bad cold for about ten days. So, but yeah, we're all trying to be really careful, and that's, uh, I missed going to downtown Toronto, <laughs> but hopefully that'll that'll happen again soon. But it was great to get up there. Well, that's and, good to hear. Uh, do you feel yeah. like? Do you still feel like a Canadian, or do you feel more like a Texan American? How do you view yourself? Yeah. Oh. A citizen of the world, I guess. North America, anyway. I, you know, it's so funny. There was there was such a Canadian uh, influx here in Austin for a while. We just lost one. Red Volkart went in and moved away. But there was a whole gaggle of us Canadians down here. But, um, yeah, Austin's my home. Like I said, I've spent more of my adult life here than I did in, in Toronto. But I still love going back home. I still love going up north to where I got to do a lot of my growing up, up in Georgian Bay, in Midland and Penetanguishene. Nice Toronto area. Is, Toronto is a bit of an adult-sized portion now. 
It's it's so busy. I know the traffic is <laughs> and ridiculous, I get, and I get and I get frustrated with the traffic because all my old hidey hole parking spots, <laughs> all my secret little alleyways God. and stuff, like no, they're all discovered. But the same things happen in Austin. It's like I still say we 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 still may be the live music capital of the world, but. We're not the parking capital. It's like, how do you get to these venues now? Okay, but don't they have like special parking spots for musicians or unloading oh, spots? There's a couple, thank goodness. Like, you know, Antone's in the Continental Club, the stuff like that will provide that for us. But I always thought that that should be a mainstay. That should come with your AFM union card. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, and we can't really Uber. It's like we're a rhythm section family. It's like, nah, when it's a set of drums and maybe if somebody asked me to play upright bass, it's like, nah, that's not going to happen. And we're still not New York City. The mass, mass transit's always been a little bit of an issue here in Austin. There, there ain't no... Uh, jumping on the subway or the streetcar with your with the little wheel under your upright base <laughs> before i go i need to ask you about dave alvin and your association with his band and his and i guess yes, with sir. his brother as well but tell me about how that came about oh that was just that was another dream come true for me i remember uh you know i never got to none of my bands never got to open for the blasters in toronto but Boy, we all wanted to. I think we would all throw our names in the hat with the club, <laughs> with the whoever was booking the club. Going, please, please, please. I remember one night seeing the Prairie Oyster open for the for the Blasters at the Diamond Club, which was extra awesome because Gene Taylor was playing piano with the Blasters at that point, and uh, him and Joni were kind of both hanging out in Toronto. So that was like, wow, God, <laughs> that was. <laughs> This is this is too great, but um, yeah, we're such huge fans of the Blasters, and then uh, I'd always follow Dave, and Dave used to like making a lot of you know records here. He always he always joked about he'd love to live in Texas, you know, and he loves Houston too and Austin as well, and uh, you know he'd he'd always say if it wasn't for that whole summer thing. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't summer really the time you're on the road that's what you try to be that's what Doug Somm always thought it was like go play the Canadian and Scandinavian wonderful festivals that they all have in the summer and then but yeah yeah that's the goal but Dave um I always wanted to play with Dave and it was like it was it was so funny and and strangely enough it was uh uh, when Dave put together the Guilty Women, which was such a a great act, you know, um, that that whole how even the Guilty Women came about was is such a great story too because um, uh, the wonderful music festival in Golden Gate Park, um, the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival, right? Dave was. Uh, scheduled to play there and he called lisa and he told lisa he said i'm putting together this band it's gonna be all women and would you consider coming out to play and and in a bizarre world of coincidence i was already going out there as jerry jeff was on it oh, and lisa was gonna come 
anyway because it's such a great festival so there we go it, it worked out great i was out there playing with jerry jeff and that was the debut of the guilty women which is such a cool act and then uh, you know after um guilty women toured and toured and toured great record and then uh i think dave was in town or something and uh that was, that was a real logistical effort for Dave put that man mirror. I mean, all these great women with great other careers. Right. How it how he was able to get it all together. But I think by the time everybody's commitments had kind of changed, it was time to maybe uh, downsize and go to, a, a, you know, a different touring format. But Dave was in town, and I guess he saw, I think he saw Lisa and I playing together. And I was like, and then he he asked me if, you know, I'd be interested in playing. I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, because he'd already had his long time, uh, one of his long time partners in crime was a great guitarist named Chris Miller, who was in The Guilty Man. And uh, he'd already asked Chris to come on board. And we'd all played with Chris here as well because Chris lived in Austin for a long time. He moved back up to Portland when Austin sadly became, you know, like it's it's expensive here mm-hmm. <laughs> now. And but Chris had spent all those years playing with Marsha Ball here and we got to play with Chris a lot. So when Dave sort of put together the guilty ones because Lisa was now gonna be playing drums instead of the guilty men, it was like it was and chance of a lifetime for me, you know. And uh, it was so great to get to play just something that visceral and that powerful <laughs> again. Oh, you seem to love what you do and enjoy. I mean, I could just see it in your face when you talk about the music <laughs> that you create and the people you've worked with. Yeah. How do you summarize this journey you've taken? It's been it's been a pretty great ride. It's been a rocket. Catch onto a rocket. <laughs> Is it? I know. I know it's hard to predict, but you know that young kid who grew up in Scarborough, who grew up in Midland, Ontario, who wanted to go into recording studios and and make records. When you look back on this journey, how do you look back on it? Oh, so, sometimes it's all a a blur and then sometimes it's really I, I wish there was a, this this last trip up up north did give me a few minutes to just reflect because I wasn't in the hustle the hustle bustle of being downtown it's like okay I gotta go see Laurie Cameron <laughs> I gotta go see you know I gotta go see Teddy at the horseshoe I gotta go see what's happening with Elma combo is somebody gonna open it up again <laughs> you know and um and I, I didn't do any of that so it did give me time to think you know, because that's I did a lot of growing up up there, um, up on the bay, and uh, yeah, it it's been really it's been really fun. Like I said, sometimes it seems like a blur. Like Jerry Jeff used to tell me that he goes, you know, Brad. Sometimes it seems like it's all a movie that goes by, and you just grab little scenes out of it. <laughs> I thought that's it, <laughs> and uh, but uh, yeah, it's. It's been wonderful and continues to be wonderful. Now in a small circle, I'm playing with an incredible singer from Prince Edward Island. So there you go, full circle. 
I can't wait to play in Canada with her. (laughs) (laughs) Is that in the plan? It, it probably will be. And, um, you know, um, and I get to play with Lisa, you know? And, um, so it's like, we still like traveling together. I think that's part of the reason was, uh, reason for our wanting to drive up to Canada aside from the fact that we still weren't too crazy about flying yet especially into Toronto it's like we're so used to being on the road it's like let's just jump in the truck and go how long of a drive is that you know the computer lady voice (laughs) said it's it was so weird it said it's actually 24 hours almost to the hour from our driveway to mom and dad's old place. Wow. Tanguishin. 24, like almost <laughs> to the to the minute. That's kind of weird. We always just went to, uh, I'm such a creature of habit. Um, I always just went to Nashville and turn left to go home. <laughs> and, uh, you know, because I'd always stop in Nashville because so many friends and almost family and always something to do there. But we were just feeling comfortable yet. We're just coming out of, you know, we're just coming out of having COVID. And uh, we just sort of drove, kind of avoided most major urban areas, went just aimed for Port Huron, said, let's cross at Sarnia. We'd already got some tips from some friends that had them back and forth across the border and said uh, that when it opened up on August, I said it was so busy at Niagara Falls. I can imagine. Detroit and everything. He said, Go for port here on Sarnia. I said, oh, I haven't been there in years. My only American relatives actually lived in uh, up around there. And uh, so I always remember going over the Blue Water Bridge. And, and it was great, you know, to get into Canada. But when the touring opens up, it'll be really fun to play with Whitney Rose in Canada. Cause, uh, and maybe we'll even get to play out in the Maritimes. I don't, I don't think Lisa's ever been to the Maritimes in Canada. And it's like. There you go. There's always an adventure. That's for sure. And uh, and we'll probably be starting up uh, touring again soon with Dave Alvin as well. So let's just all try and stay healthy. And for thanks sure. a lot for well, having me on the show. Thank and, you for doing this. I really appreciate it. I got the chance to see you with Dave Alvin. And, um, wow. and, and I, when I interviewed Lisa, I asked if you might be interested in talking to me and I really appreciate you taking this time always nice talking to somebody from the old country (laughs) (laughs) I know that's that's what my old British grandparents always used to call it the old country it's like well now I get I get to say it (laughs) (laughs) thank you very much and you take care and you sir thanks for having me bye bye